You are listening to the Fuente Network. Hola, bienvenidos a todos. Welcome back to Migrants on Air and Immigration Podcast. My name is Karina Dominguez, and I am here with my co-host, Carlos Yañez. Carlos, ¿cómo estás? ¿Qué pasó, Karina? Bien, todo bien. ¿Cómo estás tú? Bien. New episode. Exciting to be to be back recording. What have ya you been sabes. up to in the past month? Trabajando, just keeping up with the news and stuff. Siempre hay algo nuevo, like con mm-hmm. DACA o con parole, otras cosas, like entre todos estamos moviéndose. Yeah, the Supreme Court has been at it. This past month. The Supreme Court has been at it. Yeah. (laughs) But today we have a really special episode for you all. We're actually going to be doing a collab. And (laughs) earlier, Carlos and I were saying how we were remembering all those like iconic YouTube collabs. So this kind of feels like it. But today we're going to be having Yvette Borja. She is from Radio Cachimbona. And Radio Cachimbona is actually a a podcast from Tucson so we're going to be collabing with another like Arizona podcaster which is really cool yeah I don't know Carlos if you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast and how you're feeling about this conversation that we're going to have yeah no I'm super excited so I was googling a little bit about the guests that we're going to have on and well they describe themselves as a movement lawyer so I'm really excited to ask her about Uh, what that means to her, um, her litigation techniques and other things like, like of that nature. But she also runs a podcast. So just like us, she has Radio Cachimbona. So Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands. Uh, and she breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. And I really appreciate her her positionality porque she's a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoreño immigrants. So she prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of specifically Central Americans. Y como lo hemos hablado en el pasado, I think uh, a lot of the histories and uh, mainstream media prioritizes uh, voces mexicanas, more specifically Mexican culture. So I think this is really important for the larger community porque siempre there's... You know, we, we talk about like Mexican hegemony and stuff like that in the United States. And it's really cool to see Yvette uplifting voices of like Central American migrants. Yeah. And I think we mentioned this a lot, too, but especially in Arizona, since we're so close to the border, we see a lot of stories from like Mexican folks. So we're really excited to to have her on. And today's topic, we'll talk a little bit about like who she is, um, talk a little bit about Radio Cachimbona, listen to, you know, why she decided to start it. And also we'll be talking about her immigration. So she'll be our expert today. And yeah, I think we can just go ahead and introduce her. Super excited. back with our guest, uh, Yvette Borja. Yvette, can you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what your story is when working with immigration. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I am from the Bay Area, and my parents are Salvadoran asylum seekers who moved to the Bay Area during the Salvadoran Civil War in the 80s. 
And that really is the origin story of my involvement in immigration work, because that decision for them to come to the U.S. It fundamentally changed the opportunities that I had in the education system. My parents did not go to college, but I was able to be the first one in my family to graduate from college and to go to law school at Stanford. So I just wanted to use that like really amazing education and use it to be an immigration attorney. And what I am now is more of what I would say is the immigrants rights, workers rights attorney, I think stemmed from me wanting to pay it forward. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And how did you, because we know that your, your podcast Radio Cachimbona is based in Tucson. So how did you end up in Tucson? I wanted to do deportation defense for people who were detained when I was job searching in my third year of law school. And I went to the director of the immigration clinic at my law school and I asked what are good places outside of the Bay Area to do a detained deportation defense. And she asked me like where I was willing to move and if I would ever consider Tucson, Arizona. And I had actually never visited Tucson at all, but I got information about it from my partner, Joseph, who used to live in Tucson before he went to law school and we met because he moved here to be a part of No More Deaths. And he told me about like the really amazing immigrants' rights community that exists here and humanitarian aid organizations and just kind of generally about the really unique solidarity that exists here at the border and all of that sounded really inspiring. And there's a dearth of legal services too, especially compared to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I felt like my education and experience would be a lot more valuable here. So I moved here after I graduated in 2018 to work for the Florence Project, which is the only nonprofit in Arizona that provides free legal services to people who are detained in the immigration detention centers in Southern Arizona. And I was on the adult team providing pro se help. So I was providing limited legal advice to people who didn't have lawyers just to kind of to orient them in this really complicated legal system in this time when they were isolated from the outside world. And I've stayed here ever since. That's actually really cool because I used to work for the Fornis Project as well. Um, so I feel it's like awesome everybody to... used to work for the Florence Project. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's worked for the Florence Project. Um, that's so funny. Uh, yeah, I know. I did want to ask. We read kind of the description of your podcast. And I know it's an abolitionist podcast. The idea of abolition and kind of uh, did you learn of, of those things like at school at Stanford? Or was it more like community education that led you to believe in like abolitionists like yeah. Like policies. Uh, absolutely not. Stanford Law did not <laughs> teach me that. Okay, I, you know, I'm just going to take credit for bringing a lot of abolitionist thought to Stanford Law, actually. <laughs> like, there was abolitionist programming happening while I was there. It was like me and my comrades. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely more community education. Like, I really credit the National Lawyers Guild with introducing me. Well, I would say critical resistance and the National Lawyers Guild, it was all happening one summer for me <laughs> the with critical resistance like my friend who I really trust was like hey do you want to come to this workshop with me and I honestly didn't even ask what it was really about I was like sure 
And I was like, you know, because I trust her and her politics, I was like, you know, I'll go wherever you take me. The first part was kind of a theory building like history of the police and prison and trying to theorize like what a world without prisons and police would look like. And then the second part of it was a really concrete solution creating time where they gave us scenarios of times where, you know, you would normally be expected to call the police and like to try and think of strategies that you could use to not have to do that, to basically stop our reliance on the police now, even if we haven't abolished the police yet. It's like prefiguring the world that we want to live in. Also, the National Lawyers Guild was a really important part of my abolitionist journey because they adopted abolitionist politics, I think like the year before I started law school and the year before I joined. And so all the conferences that I went to, it was just like, that's where I met other abolitionist lawyers. And I, I felt really at home for the first time. And I felt like, okay, you know, cause I was in total crisis when I was in law school. And that's actually what, why like me and my partner bonded so much. Cause we were just like, oh my God, we came here to try and help our communities. And actually like we might just be fucked and like be buying into the system and we're cogs in, in the wheels of this corrupt system. But after being exposed to different kinds of lawyering, I was like, okay, like there's ways to do this ethically and, you know, in ways that feel good for me and my politics and the National Lawyers Guild and also like critical resistance, even though they're not lawyers, just everything that all the political education that they put out really shaped my own thinking. No, that's amazing. I know um, we had a conversation, I think, with an- another Florence Project or another previous Florence Project attorney. And it seemed like there was a lot of, there was kind of a gap between like lawyering and advocacy and the movement. So in your eyes, how do you kind of bridge those two worlds? Just because, you know, if you're operating in a system of bad law, how do you go about, I guess, being like a movement lawyer? Yeah. So I think for me, like doing immigration law, uh, being a movement lawyer is the only kind of lawyer that I'd want to be because... And ultimately, I think why I did leave direct legal services, because when your world is when you're doing casework and that's kind of the only thing you're doing and your world is focused on courtroom wins, it's actually very demoralizing and limiting because especially in Southern Arizona and the judges who are overseeing the cases of people who are detained, like it's very bleak. Vast majority of people that you work with are deported you know, without due process. And, you know, even if they did have process, it would still be, it would still be wrong. Like how many people are deported when they truly do need a safe haven, or even if they just want to work, you know? And I think for me, like the podcast, for example, has always been a really important part of my movement lawyering. Like even before I thought about it as that, or started talking about it as that, for me, it was a way to broaden the impact of what I was doing from individual cases inside of courtrooms to using the knowledge that I have to, you know, for example, grow support for abolition. And that's always been necessary for me to not feel like a cog in the wheel. Otherwise, you just start to feel like you're a willing participant in a very broken system. And that's not inspiring ultimately. And it did learn lead to burnout for me. And I think leads to burnout for a lot of attorneys when they're not doing like 
community work with an affirmative vision for liberation. I saw that the first episode of Radio Cachimbona was in 2017. Um, yeah. So how did that start? Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about, about the history of, of the podcast? Yeah, so originally the podcast was called Cerebronas, and I started it when I was in law school with my friend and classmate Cynthia Mesqua. And we felt like it was kind of a two-pronged thing where we felt like we weren't being heard in the classroom in law schools. There's just this expectation and this kind of buying into performing objectivity, you know, the way to demonstrate that you're a good lawyer or like the best lawyer or a great lawyer is to be able to argue both sides, you know, quote unquote, like in just uh, with like equal vigor. And, you know, that's something like to be a person of color, to be someone who is in these communities that are directly impacted. I don't want to argue the ICTA side, you know, and there's not really space for that in law school. It's just seen as like unintellectual if you can't put your feelings aside. And so we needed a space to talk about our feelings. Uh, and at the same time, also, we we're just we're learning so much about how the laws up and oppressive to communities of color. And we wanted to share that with people outside of Stanford Law School who by and large are not impacted by these laws, are very privileged, come from wealthy backgrounds and um, are just like on their way to make a ton of money at corporate law firms. And we wanted to democratize this knowledge that actually like most people who are directly impacted by the legal system aren't able to access. And Yeah, I was just like into podcasts as a concept and didn't really see anybody else that was like, that were like Latino radicals breaking down case law and politics. And so we wanted to fill that void. So that was like while I was in law school and then I graduated and moved to Arizona. And eventually Cynthia, who was a year below me, graduated too. And she expressed to me that it was too difficult to practice law and keep up the podcast. Honestly, it really is a lot, was a lot because we were editing our own stuff back then. And so I was like, I understand, like for me, it really was like keeping my sanity, like keeping my hope alive. So for me, it was like, I kind of need to do this. <laughs> and so I was like, that's like totally understand. And we just came to an agreement where I would change and rebrand because Cerebronas was kind of like me and Cynthia's thing, you know? And I decided to call it Radio Cachimbona because I wanted to have a more explicit Central American focus as someone who is Salvi and who has felt excluded by dominant Latinx narratives. I wanted to create more space for that and to learn my own history and share that with other Central Americans. And Cachimbona means like, badass in Salvadoran slang. So it felt like kind of, you know, like similar vibe, kind of a continuation of what we were doing instead of bonus, but now it's like more Central American focus. And, you know, I think like in the future, like I envision like Radio Cachimbona where there's one that's like explicitly an immigration and Arizona Borderlands podcast. And then another one that's like case law and politics. And then another one that's about Central American histories because Like, it's a lot to have in one, to be quite honest with you. But it's just like, this is who I, these are like all the parts of me. And they need to like, I need to put that out there. But yeah, I have like a vision of like a network of shows where, so that I can kind of 
dive deeper into all of these topics. But for now, I just try and do my best of balancing them all. That actually reminds me, I didn't want to ask, I know for people who haven't worked with immigration law, like it changes super, super fast, right? So yeah, how are you able to kind of like keep up with like all the changes and then distill them so like people like like us can understand it? I think that it's important to have mentors who especially like mentors who do direct legal services so because they're kind of always keeping abreast of the changes since they have to for their casework and then also just like for supreme court opinions like how to read those is something that you learn in law school and and that is part of why we started the podcast in law school because we learned the case analysis method and did, did a lot of episodes where we were just like breaking down how you understand a judicial opinion. And also like lawyers have an ethical obligation to keep up to date with the law and you have to do 15 hours of continuing. Con- I, don't, what is, I don't know what it's called. It's like CLE is the acronym. Basically like you need to do like ongoing, like 15 hours of coursework to stay up to date basically. And then I don't know, you know, I think that is also like why I, do Radio Cachimbona and want to amplify it as a resource because like I do want it to be a page where you can go to you can be like oh this like here I can go here to understand the Supreme Court's opinion on affirmative action or I can go here to understand what's happening with registration for TPS and yeah I try and make the Instagram a resource for that Yeah, that makes sense. I know um, from speaking with the people that I met at the Forms Project and other lawyers, I know it can be a little difficult. I think while we we had you here as well, I saw a bunch of stuff on Twitter and a lot of people on social media were talking about the new parole programs that think came out this week. Before we get into kind of the topics of your show and immigration and kind of how migration is criminalized, would you be able to kind of break down those um, parole programs for us? Are you talking about the travel authorization? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is something that is important for people who have U.S. citizen children who can petition for them to obtain their green card, but they aren't eligible right now because they haven't, because they first entered the country without authorization. But with travel authorization, which is where, and like under Biden, the policy has been a bit more liberal it's you don't need to um you know lay a a particular like devastating reason for why you want to travel you can actually just say that you are interested in traveling for a vacation for example um and it's something that you can apply for if you have temporary protected status which is a particular kind of legal limbo that applies to certain countries that the executive designates as a place where people need legal relief because of a natural disaster or some other crisis. And so there's like El Salvador, Honduras, Nepal, for example, that are TPS countries. And every like 18 months, you can re-register to try to 
remain in the country legally, even if you initially entered without authorization. And you can also obtain a work permit. And so now, like for those people in particular, using the travel authorization policies in your favor is something that a lot of lawyers are encouraging because there's a significant number of people who have been here for long time periods, but don't have a pathway to citizenship because of this barrier of not having been legally admitted into the country. But if you apply for travel authorization and are approved and you come back and um, are admitted at the border by a border patrol agent, then you will have erased that obstacle because you will have been legally admitted to the U.S., and now you'll be able, you're are going to be green card eligible. And this is relevant for people who have U.S. citizen children who are over the age of 21 because they can petition for their parents, for example. And there's just like a big chunk of people who would be eligible for that family-based adjustment status if it wasn't for how they entered the country. And so we're just you know, me and as part of my work, the National Day Labor Organizers Network and other lawyers are trying to get the word out about this, especially because, you know, these are folks who are otherwise vulnerable to deportation. And, you know, it would be ideal for them to become green card eligible before the change in administration, because if it's a Trump or a Trump-like person, they might try and rescind TPS altogether, just like Trump tried to do. And that would make these folks vulnerable to deportation. So that, yeah, that's the the thing. That's the situation with the travel authorization. Thank you for explaining that. I know, um, especially these things, you know, I feel like it could help a lot of people. I just know they get announced super fast and then people don't really understand like what the news mean. But I think going back to what we were talking about previously, would you tell us a little bit about how migration itself is criminalized? Yeah, so immigration is immigration cases are the most prosecuted in the federal criminal legal system, and like the vast majority of those are people who are convicted for crossing the border without authorization. You and the penalties increase the number of times that you cross without authorization, and the the penalties are pretty severe. You know you can be sentenced up to 20 years in prison and also be barred permanently from ever coming back to the U.S. legally. But there's also, you know, like in 1996, Congress passed IRA, which vastly expanded the number of crimes that make green card holders eligible for deportation. There's also 287G agreements between local police and federal immigration officers where local police collaborate with and do the work of immigration enforcement officers trying to help DHS basically put more people in deportation proceedings, which is why you hear a lot and see a lot living here of traffic stops that would otherwise be a routine traffic stop, like a ticket or something for something small, like a taillight being out ends up resulting in someone's deportation. And so like all of that is a part of how migration is criminalized. And there's honestly just a lot more to say, even just about like the things that I briefly mentioned. Um, You can't understand immigration without also 
looking at it's how intertwined it is with the, with the criminal legal system. Could you talk a little bit about like who profits off of this criminalization? Was it always this way or, you know, when did things start changing to the way that we see them today? I think the 1996 laws that I just mentioned are one really important point to understand where we're at currently. Um, And then there's like a whole private immigration detention system that profits off of like one, one consequence of the 1996 laws, for example, is that it like expanded the list of crimes for which after you serve time, you're mandatorily um, placed into ICE custody. And so private immigration detention centers profit from that like stability and security of knowing that there's always going to be that population of people that are going to get immediately transferred to the immigration detention center with no discretion. It's important to also understand local economies that unfortunately rely on on the prison system and the immigration detention system to provide jobs for the local community. Um, Like I think Eloy and Florence are two very good examples of how like the prison system and the immigration detention system are the main employers in those towns. And so like that is a whole community that is now invested in personally invested in the prison and immigration detention system. And it's important to name that because these are the entities that are entering into contracts with ICE to to build these detention centers, to keep them open, to house people in jails. And it is like these local governments that are profiting. And then also like the individual workers that go, that work at these places that like would also be upset if these detention centers and prisons were shut down because of how it would impact them financially. So in in your eyes, what does a non-carceral immigration system look like? Um, We already had one, you know, prior to the Chinese Exclusion Act, the U.S. didn't have borders. You know, for example, like ICE didn't exist until 2001. There was a free-flowing border when it was mostly Europeans that were arriving and then entered the Chinese Exclusion Act and the racialized immigration, xenophobic immigration system of the U.S. And so we already know what that looks like. We don't need to like reinvent the wheel. I think that a functioning immigration system would be one that would allow people to come and work as they want and have like actually have the same labor protections as U.S. citizens. So it would start with, you know, completely demilitarizing the border. You know, you mentioned that a lot of these systems haven't been in place for as long as some people might think. So what do you think needs to happen in order to like start changing people's worldviews of how they see the current system and be able to like look at the past that is not that far away to to start imagining a, a different world? I would say that just that they should start listening to Adia Cachimbona if they don't already, because that literally is the goal of the podcast to kind of like keep giving people different perspectives, you know, um, suggesting different texts with the lit review where people can really start thinking about this in a more serious way. Also, Ale Pablos is another abolitionist that I learned a lot from. Miriam Kava. There's like so many things. There's There's actually like a lot of resources for anybody who's interested in abolition. But I would say my podcast is a good place to start. 
And it'll also like on the podcast, I share a ton of resources that I've looked at in my abolitionist journey. And I think that that like legitimately is why it's a good place to start because you'll get clued into other texts and other thinkers and other abolitionists through the podcast. No, I appreciate those words so much because I think a lot of the people I think coming up in the movement right now haven't lived in a world like pre like 9-11, like pre ICE, pre CVP, pre DHS. So I think a lot of people, it's hard to imagine that that didn't exist like 15 years ago. I know when my dad first came, like the border was super, was, was a lot. Uh, it wasn't as fija. Like he just literally just crossed. Right. Like, like mm-hmm. people don't, people don't realize that that was the reality 15, 16, 17 years ago. So I think I really appreciate your words because this isn't the world that we have to live in. It's a world that people have chosen to live in, but that doesn't have to be that way in the future. So I really appreciate what you said. Yeah, thank you. And we'll definitely be linking your podcast in the description. But do you have anything else, Yvette, that you would like to add? Anything you would like people to know? Just that a way to support the podcast is becoming a Patreon. And I have a Patreon-exclusive content there, which is the Lit Review. And that's where I do like book club style chats with other women of color. And actually a lot of the books that I review are like abolitionist texts. So I would say that's another great resource for people too, if they're kind of really trying to think about this in a deeper way. Thank you so much. Uh, I think like Carlos said, you know, we really appreciate the resource that you are providing for the community and how accessible it is. Thank you. That's literally what I try and do. So I really appreciate it. And I'm glad it's reaching people and it's appreciated. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Bye. Bye. All right, everyone, that was our show. Um, muchísimas gracias. Uh, Migrants on Air is a Fuerte Network production in association with Corona Multimedia. I want to formally thank everyone involved in the making of this episode. Our hosts, Karina Dominguez and myself. Our guest, Ibe Borja, muchísimas gracias. Graphics were done by Karina Dominguez. Theme song is Crazy Like That by Lo-Fi. Editing was done by Dani Orona. You should follow us on Spotify for this and all other Fuerte content. And make sure to log on to Fuerte.org and sign up for our mailing list. Mil gracias a todos and hasta la próxima. Adios. Bye, y'all. <laughs>